corruption that's in the world due to sinful desire. And the world says that's not true. And the prophet Jeremiah tells us that if we get guilty of something as a kid, the leper cannot see the prophet. Those who are trusting in him and doing what he wants to do. But we know that by the power of his word, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then on the sixth day of creation, God said in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. In part, God's image involves ruling as his representative, exercising dominion over his creation, and reflecting his moral character in all that we do. Adam and Eve got off to a wonderful start. Unfortunately, it only lasted about 10 minutes. I have no idea how long it actually lasted, but it really didn't last that long. The crafty serpent entered the Garden of Eden and told our first parents that if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would become like God. They should have responded, but we are already like God. We have been created in his image. But instead, they rebelled against God's commands to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as a result, sin and death entered into the world. And the image of God in man was desecrated. Think of somebody taking a can of spray paint to a a beautiful painting in an art museum. The image remains, but it has been vandalized. That's what has happened to the image of God in man because of the fall. But the good news is that in the fullness of time, God sent his son, the second Adam, to live the perfect life that the first Adam failed to do. And then he died on the cross to atone for the sins of God's people so that they could be forgiven, reconciled to God, and have the image of God in them restored. Actually, and this is what I want you to see this morning, actually, Christ did even more than that. With his perfect life, death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, he made it possible for us to become partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. Now, before we define what that means, we need to be careful and say what it does not mean. It does not mean that we become gods. By definition, anything that becomes is not God. God is not a becoming. God just is. When God spoke to Moses at the burning bush, he said, I am that I am. Tell the people of Israel, I am that sent me to you. 
And then in John 8, 58, Jesus was talking to Jews. And he said, before Abraham was, I am. He didn't say before Abraham was, I was. He said before Abraham was, I am. Making it very clear that his existence is an eternal, self-existent being that is immutable. The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's what becoming partakers of the divine nature does not mean. So what does it mean? It means at least four things. Number one, it means that God's Holy Spirit dwells within his people. In John 16, 7, Jesus told his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Now, I don't know for sure, but when Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I go away, I think they might have doubted that a little bit. If you had spent the last three and a half years walking with God incarnate, and now God incarnate says to you, I want you to know that I'm going to go away, but it's a good thing that I go away, I might have had trouble believing that. Nevertheless, Jesus went on and he said, For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Talking about the Holy Spirit. So if we were to ask, what could possibly be better than to have God with you by your side? The answer is God within you, dwelling inside of you. And that's what happens when we become partakers of the divine nature. Second, it also means that we enjoy fellowship and intimate communion with God. Uh, this Greek word for partakers is the Greek word cornea. Many of you know that word. It means fellowship. We could translate this as we become fellowshippers of the divine nature. It's talking about an intimacy that we can have with God, that we can have with Christ. I love the, the picture that Jesus gave us in Revelation 3.20. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and, and he with me. And that's, that's the picture of fellowship, God sitting down with us together so that we can enjoy communion with him. It also means, as, as a third point, and this is just uh, pressing in further on the second point, it means we experience a union with God that closely resembles that which takes place in the Godhead. The unity that takes place among the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as, is something that we enter into. In John 17, we see Jesus praying. It's the longest recorded prayer of Jesus. Um, it's usually referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer. And in the latter half of that prayer, Jesus is actually praying for you. I don't know if you knew that. Jesus is praying for all those who later are going to believe in the apostles' message. So Jesus is looking down the corridors of time, seeing those who will believe in him, and, and he's praying for them. And among other things, this is what he says to the Father, that they, talking about these believers, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, 
that they also may be in us. Jesus praying that all the believers would be in us, just like the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. And then in the very last verse of that prayer, it ends with Jesus saying to the Father, I've made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. I just have to pause there. That the love that you have loved me, imagine that, Jesus is praying that the love that the Father had for the Son, he is praying that that love would be in us. He's praying that that love would be in you. And then he says, and I in them. So being partakers, fellowshippers of the divine nature is God uniting himself with us in a very personal and intimate way. And then finally, it means that our natures will reflect God's nature in a life of godliness and virtue. And in other words, the fruit of the Spirit will be evident in our lives because God is within us and fellowshipping up and has united with us so that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control will be seen in our lives. So that's, that's what it means to be partakers of the divine nature. So the question, I, I hope right now that you are begging to be answered is, how can we become partakers of the divine nature? What is, what is necessary for that to happen? And Peter has three things that are needed if you're taking notes. Number one, and I'll explain these terms as we go. Number one, contact knowledge. Number two, precious promises. And number three, expulsive desires. So let's begin with the first one. We need, we need contact knowledge. Now follow Peter's argument in verse 3. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his glory and excellence. God's power for life in all its fullness and godliness is unleashed through knowledge. That tells us how important knowledge is. And then notice the introduction in verse 2 that we read. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter said the very same thing in his first epistle. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. But in his second epistle, he now adds, in knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So he's letting us know that whatever grace you have right now, whatever peace you have right now, it can be multiplied, and that multiplication will take place through the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. One Bible dictionary says that this is knowledge through a firsthand relationship, contact knowledge. I like that. That's why I gave this heading, contact now, so this isn't just head knowledge. This isn't just knowing systematic theology up in our heads. It's not less than that. You need to know facts about God. But it is much more than that. This is talking about a knowledge that begins in the head, but has seeped into our hearts, transformed our affections. And this is a knowledge that has resulted from spending time with God. This is a knowledge that has resulted from being in contact 
with God. It's just like any other relationship. If you're going to get to know the person who is sitting next to you or, or behind you, you need to spend time with them. You don't, you don't just read books about them. You don't just read their, their resume or some kind of file that you may have on them. If you're really going to get to know them, you're going to sit down with them. You're going to communicate with them. And that's the idea here, contact knowledge, which means that your biggest problem and I confess that it is also my biggest problem is that you do not know God. If you're a Christian, obviously you know God. You can't be a Christian without knowing God. But there is always more of God to know. After all, he's an infinite God. A.W. Tozer in his classic book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says, The low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. The decline of the knowledge of the holy has brought on our troubles. A rediscovery of the majesty of God will go a long way toward curing them. It is impossible to keep our moral practices sound and our inward attitudes right while our ideas of God are erroneous or inadequate. If we would bring back spiritual power to our lives, we must begin to think of God more nearly as he is. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. If we really knew God as he is, that would evidence itself in our lives. And sometimes it would manifest itself in remarkable ways. Just let me give you... One example, this is from Hebrews 11, 17 and 19. We read, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So in Genesis 22, God comes to Abraham and he says, I want you to sacrifice your one and only son, Isaac, whom you love, and he takes him up on Mount Moriah, and Abraham is getting ready to actually sacrifice his son. And that is significant because God had promised that through Isaac the promises would take place. But if he's going to kill his son, that'll bring an end to the promises, and then the promises can't be fulfilled of a descendant coming from his son that will bless all the families of the earth. But Abraham is going to go ahead and do it anyways, because as verse 19 says, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Because when Abraham was about to plunge the knife, God, God stopped him. I remember talking to a, a maintenance worker on, on one occasion, and for some reason this episode came up, and he said, God told me to sacrifice one of my children. No way would I do it. And he wouldn't. But you know why he wouldn't do it? Because he doesn't know God the way Abraham does. What does Abraham know about God? Abraham knows that God is a promise-keeping God. If God said through Isaac the promises are going to be fulfilled, the promises will be fulfilled. And if he's telling me to kill him, then it must be that he's going to raise him from the dead because God's not a liar. 
Let every man be a liar, but God is not a liar. So he believed that God is able to raise the dead, and that's what he's going to do, that may he raise him from the dead. He knew God. And it evidenced itself in his, in his life in a, in a powerful way. And if we know God, if we have this contact knowledge, we will become partakers of the divine nature. So if you're, if you're a Christian, you want to make it your, your ambition to, to get to know God, to fully know Him. So to be partakers of the divine nature, we need contact knowledge. We need precious promises. Precious promises. Verse 4, by which talking about God's glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. That happens through the promises. Now here's what I want you to see. Peter could have just said, God has granted us promises. He didn't say that. He could have said, God has granted us precious promises. He didn't say that. He could have said, God has granted to us precious and great promises. He didn't say that. He said, God has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Now, what might Peter be trying to communicate by piling up all these adjectives? At the very least, I believe he is telling us that God's promises are among his most precious gifts. You know how many promises there are in the Bible? There are about 8,000 promises. I counted them this last week because I knew that you would, you would want to know that. No, I didn't count this last week. But there are about 8,000 8, promises in the Bible. From, from one perspective, the, the entire Bible is, is a book of precious and, and very great promises. In Genesis 3.15, in a curse on the serpent, God promises that a day is coming when the seed of the woman will eventually crush the head of the serpent that introduced sin into the world. And then in Genesis 9.15, after, after God destroyed the world with a flood, he put his rainbow in the sky, and it was a sign of the covenant that he made to Noah, and he promised Noah and future descendants that never again would he destroy the entire creation through a flood. And then in Genesis 12, God made a, made a covenant with Abraham. And, and in verse 3, he promised that through one of his descendants, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And then in Genesis 17, God established the sign of the covenant with, with Noah, the sign, the sign of circumcision. And God promised Abraham that those who take upon themselves the covenant and enter into covenant with me... I promise to be God to them and their children. How's that for a promise? God promises to those in covenant with him. He will be your God and he will be God to your children. Now, if you're a parent this morning, what, what promise could be better than that? Well, the answer is Deuteronomy 7, 9. Because in Deuteronomy 7, 9, God not only promises to be God to you and your children, but if he should be gracious, he will be faithful to your descendants to a thousand generations. 
which is just a way of saying until the end of time, until the return of Jesus Christ. And that's just five of the promises. We still have 7,995 more to go. Let me give you just one more because it's, it's fresh on my mind. Psalm 37. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Uh, a couple weeks ago, um, you all surprised Michelle and I with a, a celebration honoring us for 25 years of ministry here at the church. And, and we thanked you, and, and we praise God for his faithfulness over the years. Um, some of you may, may know this, but one of the gifts given to me was a canvas by an Italian artist. And it's a picture of David. And in his right hand, he's holding a sword. And in his left hand, he, he is holding in his hand uh, the head of Goliath. And some of you are thinking, that, that seems gruesome. <laughs> and, and maybe it is a little gruesome. I don't know if you know this. File this one under fun facts. At least the guys will think it's fun. But there are, there are actually four references in 1 Samuel 17 to the head of Goliath. I'll just read them real quick. Um, this is David taking on the giant Goliath. David says, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took the sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. David cut off Goliath's head with his own sword. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. And then in verse 56 we read, And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine still in his hand. So there's the picture. David's walking all over Jerusalem, meeting King Saul, and he's still holding the head of Goliath in his hand. And if you have time to come into my office and see the painting, what I want you to think is that is a picture, that is an illustration of Psalm 37.4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And some of you right now are thinking, how so? David was the youngest of eight brothers. Three of his brothers had joined Saul in battle with the Philistines. And his father, Jesse, sent him to go check on his brothers to see how the battle was going. And when David arrives, he sees this giant, and he sees him defying the armies of the living God. He can't believe it. He's defying the armies of the living God. And this went on day after day after day for 40 days in a row and as David is watching this you can tell me if my imagination is running away with me as he is watching this his heart is burning within him and he says I wish somebody would knock down that unclean uncircumcised Philistine and cut off his head with his own sword how dare he defy the armies of the living and true God, my God. And God saw the desire 
his heart. God saw that David was a man after his own heart. Or in the words of Psalm 37, 4, he saw that David delighted himself in the Lord. So he gave him the desire of his heart. He gave him the head of Goliath. And what David did to the Goliath is a picture of what his greater son, the Lord Jesus, would do centuries later. Again, imagine Jesus, for all eternity, lived in the bosom of the Father. And then God creates the angels. And then God creates the universe, and he, he puts his glory on display. And, and in the span of six days, he rested on the seventh day. In the span of six days, he creates the world. And as you survey the world that God created, we see that it was good, 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 good every day and at the end. And then God saw that it was very good. Of course it was very good. It came from God. But then this serpent enters into the garden and deceives the woman. And she eats from the tree that God told her not to. God said, the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And she eats and she gives some to her husband who's, who's with him. Their eyes are opened. And they realize they're naked and they're ashamed. And sin enters into creation. And along with that, violence and in death and destruction. And the heart of Jesus is grieved within him. And because he loves the Father, he is wishing that, that somebody would crush the head of that serpent. And he's wishing that somebody would redeem God's people so that they could be forgiven, so that they could be reconciled to the Father, so that the image of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit within him could be restored and the Father, in essence, says to the Son, because you delight in me, I will give you the desire of your heart. You will defeat the serpent, and you will redeem my people and undo the damage caused by the curse. Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. And that's just six promises. We still have 7,994 more to go. It's going to be a long message. Here, think about it. If we were to provide examples for every single one of God's precious and very great promises, the books that would be written would overflow the Library of Congress. He has given us these wonderful promises so that we can live according to them and become partakers of the divine nature. Experience the work of God in our lives and ways that we perhaps never have dreamed of. So if we're going to experience God's, God's divine nature, we need contact knowledge, we need precious promises, and we need expulsive desires. Again, follow the logic of Peter in verse 4. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Because we have escaped the corruption that is in the world, we can become partakers of the divine nature. And having escaped the corruption of the world implies that at one time, we were in bondage. We were in prison. 
And we needed someone to open the prison door so that we could escape. And notice very specifically what held us in bondage. It was sinful desires. The heart of your problem, it's the heart of my problem, it's the sinful desires within us. What is the origin of every temptation? Ultimately, it's sinful desires. James 1, 13 and 15, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to to death. It starts with desire, conceives, grows, and eventually results in death. Which means that our greatest battle is that against our desires. That's, that's the battle that rages all around us. Not just all around us, but within us. So whether you struggle with alcohol, drugs, porn, Laziness, anger, greed, envy, bitterness, unforgiveness, gluttony, pride, the need for the approval of others, God's design for your gender or sexual expression, spending money that you don't have, being in a relationship that you shouldn't be in, refusing to give up a harmful addiction, the problem all boils down to desires. And the reason for that lengthy list was my intention to try and include all of us. Because all of us have desires that we're battling, that we must battle. That's the hearts of the battle. So here's the question. How are we going to escape these desires? Here's the answer that Thomas Chalmers gave. This is the title of a message he gave. It was called the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. And what he meant by that is we're going to have an impact on our desires. We're going to expel these desires as we have a new desire for God. Before a fighting fire with fire. This is fighting desire with desire. The key to escaping the corruption of the world because of sinful desires is to be intentional about setting our affections on God, or delighting in God, or desiring God, or pursuing joy in God, however you want to describe it. The key is to have a desire in God, for God, that's greater than any other desire that you have for the things of this world. I like what John Piper says in his classic book, Desiring God. He says, Pursuing joy in God is the key to breaking the power of sin on our way to heaven. Matthew Henry put it like this, The joy of the Lord will arm us against the assaults of our spiritual enemies and put our mouths out of taste for those pleasures with which the tempter baits his hook. This is the great business 
of life to put our mouths out of taste for those pleasures with which the tempter baits the hook. And the tempter is crafty. He knows exactly what bait to use. You think you fishermen know what bait to use? The serpent knows exactly what bait to use in order to get people to bite. Amen. This is what John Piper says. I know of no other way to triumph over sin long term than to develop a distaste for it because of a superior satisfaction in God. I agree. I know of no other way to triumph over sin long term than to develop a distaste for it by a superior satisfaction in God. Which means when you get up in the morning, you need to place as number one on your agenda list Psalm 90. 14, and you need to pray as the psalmist did. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Pray that God would satisfy you with his love. Because if you are not satisfied with God's love, you will go out into your day and you will look for people, things, pleasures, Whatever to satisfy you. But if God is your satisfaction, then you can go through life and you can serve in the strength that he provides. Because you will serve being a partaker of the divine nature. So you need, and I need, that expulsive desire to live the life God is calling us to. So we can become partakers, fellowshippers of the divine nature when we have this intimate personal contact knowledge and we cling to God's precious and very great promises and when we're intentional about setting our desires and affections on God so we, that we have these expulsive desires. Now you may have noticed that Peter puts this in the future. He says, so that you may become partakers of the divine nature. Does this mean that the Christians aren't already partakers of the divine nature? I, I take it that they are. Just like we can talk about salvation in terms of past, present, and future. The Bible says we have been saved by justification. We are being saved, sanctification. We will be saved in the future, glorification, when we're with God in heaven. When we become Christians, we became partakers of the divine nature. God's spirit dwells within us. We enjoy fellowship with God. But that can grow, just like any other relationship, and become more intimate and more personal. And, and Peter wants it to grow and, and increase over time. And then a day is coming when we will become partakers of the divine nature that I think at this point we can, we can only imagine as we get to heaven. And, and Jesus brings us into the fellowship of the triune. forward to and in the meantime that's what we are living for in our day to day 